This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on how to ask for help. Yes, asking for help. So many of us need it, and so few of us really know how to get the help we need. I have my own thoughts about why that might be the case, but I'd also like to invite you. Call in. We'd love to know. Do you need help asking for help? You can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. We'd love to hear your voice in the conversation. We'd also hear, love to hear your stories on how people have asked you for help and whether you felt it worked the right or the wrong way. Once again, that's one 844 844-942-7866. Now, I know all these amazing me- women in my life, whether it's my friends, my colleagues, my neighbors, and yet I find so many people are bogged down yet really reluctant to ask for help. Sometimes they're afraid they'll be turned down. Other times they're just too proud to ask. And in some cases, which I hear all too often, they think that getting help will actually be harder than doing it themselves. But today's guest says that contrary to our expectations, people are actually hardwired to be helpful, and that the rest of us can learn how to ask for help in ways that not only make our lives easier, but can actually strengthen our relationships in the process. So as I said, we'd love to hear from you. You can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Dr. Heidi Grant is our guest today, and she's got a new book out called Reinforcements, How to Get People to Help You. She's a social psychologist who researches, writes, and speaks about the science of motivation. In 2017, she was named one of Thinker 50's most influential management thinkers in the world. She's also global director of the research and development of research and development at the Neuro Leadership Institute and serves as the associate director of the Motivation Science Center all at Columbia University. She's the author of several other books including Succeed, Nine Things Successful People Do Differently and Focus. And today, she's joining us here on Women at Work. So Heidi, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you so much, Laura, for having me. So, you know, I was describing a moment ago, I see these patterns, but why is it that people don't ask for help? Is it fear? Is it pride? What's behind it? It's all of those things. I think first and foremost, one of the the things that I really wanted to share with people in the book is how, how we, one of the things that really holds us back about asking for help is that we wildly underestimate the odds that other people are going to actually want to help us. Um, There's a ton of research on this that shows that typically we underestimate by about half. So, you know, people are twice as likely to want to help us as we think they are. And a lot of that has to do basically with a a failure of perspective taking on our part. When we think about asking for for someone's help, we usually think about the, the, the basically the cost to that person, right? How how irritating it's going to be, how <laughs> right. effortful, how difficult, and we're so busy imagining, you know, what that's going to be like for them that we don't think about a couple of other really important things. We don't think about first of all the the opportunity we're creating for them to feel really great because there are very few things that make human beings 
feel happier and give them a greater sense of well-being than helping another person. I mean, honestly, if you've ever just held a door open for someone who is struggling to get through with a baby carriage you, and then you just feel really good about yourself oh, please. afterwards, you, it, you know how this feels, It right? makes my day when I can help make somebody's oh, life nice. better. We all feel like we're really good people, you know, and that's really important. <laughs> it's a boost of self-esteem, and it's a lasting one. I mean, the research really shows that, that behave, you know, things we do to help other people gives us a lasting sense of well-being. So, so you're creating this opportunity for other people to, frankly, feel great. And the other thing is we often really don't think about how uncomfortable it's going to be for that person to say no. Um, and, we, and it's funny that we don't think about this because we all actually know how uncomfortable <laughs> it is to say no to someone who wants our help. So both of those things are really strong motivators for other people to actually give us the help that we need. We're so busy not only, you know, thinking about how awful it's going to be and so we underestimate the odds, we also, there's a really uh, common misconception that people think that other people will think less of you if you if you need help. Mm-hmm. And that's really, really common. We think that other people won't think I'm capable, won't think I'm smart, and that they'll like us less. And again, the research is really clear on this. The opposite is true. People who actually admit that they need help on something and are really forthcoming about that um, actually are respected more. They're considered more capable. And the other thing is that actually there's tons of research that shows that if I help you, I like you more, oh, not that's less. really interesting. Strengthens our relationship. So, it doesn't undermine it. That's amazing. So there's a lot to unpack here. So yeah. I'm going to dive in for a minute. So first yeah. of all, I want to note I actually I have this amazing staff. It's like they fell from the heavens, and <laughs> and as I've said to them, you know, the reason why we hired these people isn't because they know everything. It's because they learn, and the way right. that they learn is by asking for help when they need it. So I actually take it as a sign that we're actually prompting them to grow in useful ways. Absolutely. And I think, it, again, it's, a, it's, it's something that we respect in other people when they are willing to admit that there's something they don't know, to go out of their way to seek to learn it by asking other people for their guidance or asking them to sort of show them how to do something. Mm-hmm. We actually, it's amazing. You know, if, if, if there's one thing as a psychologist, especially if you're a, a science, scientific psychologist like me and you do a lot of experiments and you see this disconnect between our intuitions about what other people think and feel and about our own behavior and the reality. And it's so funny to me the, the, how many times we, you know, fail to actually put ourselves really in the shoes of other people. When we, when we see other people ask for help, we respect it, we admire it, um, we understand it, we think it makes sense. When we are the ones who need help, suddenly we think that's the worst thing in the world right, and, and, that a person can want. And is it because we're so worried about being judged? and being seen as weak when we ask for help? I think a lot of it is that. A lot of it is we don't want to be judged negatively. And the other thing is nobody likes the experience of rejection. You know, the human, the human brain is it's really interesting. We are wired to experience social threats like, like rejection, um, exclusion, feeling disrespected, feeling not valued. We are wired to actually experience them as physical pain. So there's this area in the brain that is involved in the process of physical pain. If you drop a a hammer on your toe, this part of the brain lights up Mm -hmm. uh, and is experiencing that pain. The same exact area of the brain lights up when people experience rejection. 
And you might think that's really weird, but actually, you know, human beings are incredibly social animals. We evolved to be acutely sensitive to how well we're doing in our group and whether or not we're about to kind of get kicked so out of the when, band. So when our so, feelings yeah. are hurt because we've mm-hmm. been rejected, it's really a physical form of pain. Oh, it's real pain. And to your brain, it's real pain. And, it's, and that's why we have so many expressions like it felt like a slap in the face or a punch in the gut. Or, or it broke my heart. Yes, exactly. Do you know there's even research that shows that if you take Tylenol every day for two weeks, you experience less social pain. You oh, my God. Less reje- now, okay. That's a good idea, So by the I way. was going to ask, would it be irresponsible <laughs> for those of us with adolescents to oh. administer Tylenol before they go to high school? Honestly, the temptation to say after, like, a teenager has a breakup to say, like, to take two aspirin, you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> really tremendous. There's actually uh, some science behind it. There's actually some science behind it. It's true. So, so we're all, you know, when we think about, again, because we underestimate how likely other people are to help us, we're anticipating a much higher rate of rejection than we're actually going to get. And anticipating that pain is enough to make people want to have nothing to do with it. And, and so they, and they avoid it at all costs. And, you know, we all need help. I mean, we're not just talking about sort of like big, you know, elaborate, dramatic requests for help. It's the everyday things. It's the things we do in the course of our workday where we need a colleague to, you know, prioritize something a little bit differently in our favor or mm-hmm. show us how to do something. You know, it's the, it's the stuff of everyday work that we need help and support from the people around us. And we're so often reluctant to ask for it. And I see it across the board, but I feel like this is particularly acute for women and especially women who are re-entering or just entering the workplace? Well, again, I think you there have um, some real concerns that women have a little bit, you know, again, everybody has these concerns, right? So they're true of men and women Mm -hmm. both. But with women, we do have a little bit more of that dealing with that, um, you know, psychologists call it stereotype threat, that when there's a stereotype about your group, right, even if you believe it's not true, that your group is less competent in some way, and that there's a stereotype about that, we are often in some level working a little bit extra hard to try to not accidentally confirm the stereotype. Mm. And so the last thing a lot of women in particular, and there are other groups to whom this applies, want to do is, is, is sig- send any kind of signal that they are not competent. And a lot of people fear that asking for help is a signal of not being competent. It actually turns out not to be. People don't perceive it that way, um, but we worry that they'll perceive it that way. But we're afraid that they will. And then if you couple that with our tendency to not be willing to take a risk, to not take a chance unless we're 100% ready, whereas, um, you know, we know men will take that risk if they're like 60% ready. Absolutely. And I think there's also a a piece to it where, you know, women are a little bit more likely to feel like um, any kind of mistake, any kind of error or any kind of admission of not knowing something signals low ability in a way that men worry about that, but they worry about it a little bit less than we do. And there's lots of reasons for that um, that have to do with, with you know, development um, and how, how men and women are socialized, that men are just socialized, you know, encouraged a little bit more to be risk-takers. Mm-hmm. Uh, women are generally not. Um, and, and, again, that, you know, again, this applies to everybody, but you do actually see a little bit more of that um, reluctance to do anything that might undermine how other people see them. Right. 
to and reveal again, to create a perception of weakness. Right, and then then and then the, the irony here is that that doesn't actually do that, but we worry that it does that, and so we women are less likely to ask for help, and that puts them at another an, yet another yes, sense of disadvantage in that, the workplace. That's the uh, the irony because then you're a you're not getting the help to solve the problem to maximize the effort to do the networking that you need, whatever it is where you actually need other people. Um, you're denying yourself that opportunity because you're afraid to ask. You know, and I, I'm glad you brought up the networking thing because I think it's so interesting. There's so there's so much energy around around the importance of networking. Mm-hmm. You know, more than ever before. You, you go to you you know go on Amazon and go in the business book section. There's a ton of books on 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 networking. Yes. A lot of advice <laughs> out there, and it's important, right? And we all know it's important, and we all have you know manage our LinkedIn networks very carefully and. And the, the irony, I think, is that there's a lot of great advice about how to build networks, but not a lot of advice. And that's sort of actually what I was trying to fill that space with the advice in the book around how to tap into that network. Because it's great to have a lot of connections, but if you don't feel comfortable reaching out to those people when you actually have a need, a need for an introduction, mm-hmm. a need for a piece of information, a need for an insight, then your network isn't going to do you any good. That's a really good point. And that you've, you've built up all these connections, you're not tapping into them, so they really don't do anything for you. But also, asking for help can be a way to build a relationship, can't it? Oh, I, I have built countless relationships needing the help of other people. <laughs> uh, there's a, you know, and it's, it's really interesting in the, the book author universe is such a funny thing because it, you know, we don't, people generally speaking don't have a competitive attitude toward one another because it's not like if they read, you know, your book, they're not going to read mine, right? People who read, read. And so they tend to read a lot of books. And so we all are very kind of helpful to each other. And I've made a lot of really great friends from having to, you know, when I started with my first book, reach out to other authors and say, oh my gosh, like, I see that you have written for this magazine or, you know, how did you... How did you get that opportunity? And then having them say, oh, do you want me to, you know, I'm happy to connect you with my editor there. And I'm, these are people who are now my friends, you know, that I consider like actually good friends. Um, but, but I built those relationships out of, out of actually having to need, to need their help for something and reaching out to strangers, which believe me, you know, I have lots of sympathy around how hard this is. It's not like it isn't hard for me. I, <laughs> I feel that. You know, I and you know the science and it's still hard for you. I, you know, and you kind of make yourself, and I do, and I tell, I, re- I literally tell tell myself uh, these things like, hey, wait, 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 you're, you know, remember, Heidi, you're creating an opportunity for someone to feel really good about helping. So, <laughs> you know, and you have to kind of, in the beginning, because we're so used to thinking about help this way, we actually have to kind of engage in a little bit of self-talk to, to psych yourself up for it. But but what I hope to do, you know, with the, because the book is really all about, you know, really evidence. It's mm-hmm. research on all of this stuff. And that kind of arms people with a little bit of something they can hang on to. In Absolutely. Moments, like, I know it's uncomfortable, but we have to get past it. And, yeah. and, it's, and it's good for all of us to get past it. Absolutely. By the way, you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. And my guest is Dr. Heidi Krantz, social psychologist and author of Reinforcements, How to Get People to Help You. 
you. If you would like to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. Do you need help asking for help? Call us. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And seriously, we'd love to, we would love to help you. So give us a call. Make us feel good. Um, that's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So Heidi, you know, we know that we have this challenge of asking for help, um, that it stirs up all this fear. It stirs up this anxiety. Um, and in the book, you you really gave um, a wonderful series of explanations about the different types of pain that we're facing when we do this as we are afraid of losing status or control or autonomy. Right. Because there are very different kinds. And, you know, it's interesting. So there's, there's basically um, five kinds of social threats and rewards people can experience, you know, sort of roughly speaking. So they can feel a sense of a, a threat to their status, right, like how, how respected I am by other people, my sort of relative standing. They can feel a threat to their sense of certainty, um, you know, what's going to happen in this situation. Mm-hmm. They can feel a threat to their sense of autonomy or control, right? I'm, you know, you know am, am I behind the wheel or is somebody else controlling my outcomes? A threat to their sense of relatedness, which is sort of my connection to other people. Do I feel like I belong? Do I feel like people like me? And then a threat to their sense of fairness. You know, am I getting what I deserve? Am I getting the opportunities and the credit and and so on? And if you think about it, being rejected when you ask someone for help potentially actually does all five. Right, I mean, it's, all so at it's once. A, it's a whopper, right? It, it, it makes you feel bad about yourself. You feel un, a sense of uncertainty about even approaching someone, like what's going to happen. You don't feel in control. You can feel rejected personally by this person. And you can feel like, you know, at the end of the day, that wasn't fair. You know, that person really <laughs> actually should have helped me. So at the it's, it's this incredible, com- it's really kind of like your brain is sort of firing on all cylinders when it comes to the amount of pain that a rejection can cause. I think, again, though, what so that makes it really understandable, right? Why right. why we avoid it? But that what's important is to realize the odds of that happening are just so much lower than we think. And you can do things to actually increase the chances that somebody is going to help you and is going to find it rewarding to help you. And that was again one of the things I really wanted to emphasize. This is an opportunity for a win-win. Absolutely. This book is not about manipulating people <laughs> into helping you. This is a book about like everybody getting what they need. You getting the help you need and that person getting the opportunity to find it really rewarding to help you and getting that lasting well-being from it. I want to um, back really up for important. a second sure. because mm-hmm. when you were we you mentioned you you phrased the idea of helping two different ways that you're worried that you don't realize that people want to help and you don't think that they will help. Right. Talk to me about that difference of Oh yeah. um when we're seeking help, understanding the difference between how do you get somebody to say what's involved in someone saying yes? Yeah. And what's mm-hmm. the difference between having them say yes but being happy to say yes? Oh, there's a really big difference. So in the book I, I talk about, there's sort of two yeses. There's like, the, yeah, okay, yes, right? <laughs> so sort of I have to. I, I, I don't feel like there's any way for, around this for me. Um, and we, and I guess from a psychologist would call that controlled helping, right? I feel controlled by, by the situation. I really don't feel like I have a choice. And then there's the, yes, absolutely, I'd love to help you, yes, which is the really good yes, right? That's the one that right. feels to that person like it's genuine. It's coming from them, they authentically want to do it. And the difference actually really matters. When you, when you, when you end up feeling like you don't have a choice but to help someone, 
um, you you tend to actually give the bare minimum in terms of helping. You you kind of check whatever you have to do to check the box and get it off your to-do list, you do. And, and just as important, there's no reward in it for the person. So they tend to not feel that warm glow and at that boost of well-being when they're kind of just going through the motions and they feel controlled. When they feel like they're choosing to help you, then they actually tend to not only really want to help but actually give far better quality help and, in fact, sometimes more help than you were even asking for. And that's the kind of help that leads to people feeling really good. And, and again, that becomes a sustaining thing. So this becomes your relationship gets stronger and this is someone that you can go to one another for help again and again, right? The reservoir doesn't yes. really run so dry. So let me give you two examples from my mm-hmm. own experience just mm-hmm. off the top of my head. So one is um, I had a former colleague who um, was in a jam, had nothing to do with my department, um, but was obliquely asking for help by saying, do you remember when we helped you? Now it's your turn to help us. And I felt cornered. Mm -hmm. And that was very different than when I had a friend who was going through, now granted this is a work personal life comparison, but in personal life they were going through an enormously difficult time and it was breaking my heart to see the family struggle. And I kept saying, I'll do anything. Can I help in any way? And I got a funny request that they needed some comfort food, which was actually one of my favorite grandmother's, one of my favorite recipes for my grandmother to make. I was so freaking happy that I could make noodle kugel and that might magically make things better. Oh, exactly. I would have made a hundred noodle kugels. I know you'll, it doesn't, it's like, it's not even really effortful at that point. And it, and it's so interesting because you gave such a great example of what the difference is between those two. There are so many, there's a, there's a section in the book I call, a chapter I called, You Made It Weird. And, <laughs> I love and that. It's, and it's basically because there's so many things that we do intuitively when we ask for help and we think we're increasing the chances we're going to get help. And we are either not actually doing that or we're, we're actually making it worse and we're, and we're making it feel controlled. One of them is the one that you, that you gave, the example you gave, which is reminding somebody that they owe you one. Right. It's, it's a very the, matcher, not, not oh. giver. Yes. So Adam Grant from Wharton, his research, you know, uh, is def- and we're not related, by the way, people <laughs> think so. Um, so uh, and, and I love his work on this. But, you know, again, people, human beings are naturally incredibly reciprocal by nature. We, we do actually know when we owe someone one, right? We, we want to give back when people yeah. have given to us. When you make that explicit, what you've done is actually, as you're saying, make it an exchange relationship make it a matcher. So you're actually taking the relationship down a notch. And, and, and instead of being a friendship where I ask you a favor and I'm not trying to control you, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, I'm not trying to give you a reward, that's another thing that we do that's a huge mistake, do this for me and I'll take you out to lunch. Okay, that's well, transactional. Wait. That's a business arrangement. It's a transaction. And so, you know, literally relationships have these, these degrees of intimacy, and the, the most basic one is transactional. That's the same relationship we have with a clerk in a store, right? I'm going to give you something. You're going to give me something. And that's really not a relationship. When you get to a point where you have a friendship, you have a connection, your colleagues, then now we start not playing tit for tat. We don't keep track. 
we don't reward one another for doing nice things. It's just inherently a part of the implicit, you know, understanding of the relationship. So when you make it transactional, you're you're literally taking the relationship down to a lower level, and people feel awful. It's like, and I had that. I've had that happen to me. Oh, do this for me, and I'll do. You know, I'll take you to lunch. Well, wait, am I doing it for you because I'm a nice person, which is my preferred way of thinking, right. or am I doing it for you for a free lunch, which just seems really pathetic actually when you think about it and so so again you know offering incentives for people to help you if if they're not strangers um is really dangerous because and, it's really damaging and um and it's funny because it seems like it's just a step away from taking that same lunch and instead of offering it as payment is to then surprise somebody with it as a oh, sign absolutely. of gratitude and a way of saying thank you Absolutely. Lunch is not the problem. It's when you present yes. it as the option. Yes. Is it an incentive or is it, is it is, as you said, is it a way of showing, you know, how much you meant to me? And that, you know, Adam has done, Adam Grant has done a, a ton of work on this other really important aspect of helping, which is the ability to feel effective, to feel like your help landed because that's something that's very, very important to helpers. We all want to feel like our – no one wants to be an ineffective helper. They they want to really <laughs> right. feel like they made a difference. They had an impact. And so swinging back around and saying, you know what? What you did for me was so amazing. I want to take you to lunch to celebrate. It's not about the lunch. It's about that, you know, that's a sign to that person that they really made a difference. Right. That's what gives them the warm glow, not the lunch. But the lunch is nice. Right. And <laughs> and also, I think going back to that idea of how do we ask for help and when is it an avenue to deepen a relationship? Right. It sounds like, you know, the first step is that we're making room for someone to enter our lives just by expressing the request never mind that we're sharing our vulnerability or our need with them i i think absolutely there and there is a there is a sense in which when you open up to someone in that way there's a, a natural desire to want to help you and then if they have helped you a natural desire again to like you more there was this really great study that that illustrated this um, really nicely, where they had, you know, uh, people come into an experiment, they had to perform this task, they were going to get paid for it. The experimenter was a little bit rude, uh, deliberately, right? It was sort of scripted to be a little bit rude. And at the end of the experiment, they asked people to rate how much they liked the experimenter. But in one version of it, so they, you know, they get paid, they rate how much they like the experimenter. They don't like him, by the way, is the answer. <laughs> but when one version of it, they actually had the experimenter at the end of it give them the money and say, you know what, um, I'm paying for this out of my own pocket because it's part of my own research program. And honestly, I'm, I'm broke. Like that's my, the last of my money. Would you mind not actually taking the money? Um, and people overwhelmingly agree. They give them the money back, right? So again, people are nice. Right. They help much more than we think they will. And then at the end, they rated how much they like him. And now they overwhelmingly like him, even though he had been rude the entire time. <laughs> Because, because we actually like it's almost like this cognitive dissonance thing. If I was if I did something nice for you, I must like you. You know, you must be a good person. And so so there is this huge irony around that that you know not, uh, giving somebody the opportunity to help you is not only makes them feel great, but actually creates a, a closeness with you and a liking for you that may not have existed before. So it actually can help form a bond despite oh, our original fears that it's actually going to alienate us. Yeah, it's like we couldn't be more wrong, really. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's one of the best things to do. So, Heidi, I have a favor to ask. I'm hoping it's not too much of a bother. Can you script the right and the wrong way to ask for help? 
<laughs> you know, there is a there very you clearly read the book. So there's a there's a great technique. I t- so so there's all kinds of things that are are really useful techniques for getting people to be a little bit more likely to say yes. Again, I just want to say for the record, they're already pretty likely to say yes. Yes, but you can even make that a little more likely. There is one technique I talk about in the book that was really interesting. Um, in the, in a lot of the research, by the way, on helping is is comes at some cost because the people in these experiments hate being in these experiments. They get brought in and they're told, all right, the thing you're going to be doing is walking up to complete strangers and asking them to help you with something. And immediately they just want to run because that just sounds like the worst possible thing you could you could ask someone to do. And so they go out and they, you know, have to ask uh, strangers to fill out a questionnaire or to loan them their cell phone or something like that that feels really awkward. Um, there's a There was a version of this where they, they had to ask a, these, these poor people were sent into a really busy commuter station and they were asked um, to ask strangers to fill out a short questionnaire. So they would walk up to someone and say, will you do this? Now, these are commuters. They're kind of in a hurry. But right, and actually, probably pretty crabby to begin uh, with. Yeah, and who wants to do this, right? But, but over 50% of them, around 55%, say yes. So that's already really impressive, right? That's a high response rate. I know. And then and then they did a subtle variation on this. They said, instead of saying going up to someone and say, excuse me, will you fill out this questionnaire? They said, excuse me, would you do me a favor? And then they waited until the person says what invariably everyone says, you know, sure. Well, okay, sure. Yeah. Right. And then they said, will you fill out this questionnaire? Now the success rate was over 80%. And which is a kind of amazing, right? And it's sort of a magical phrase, but it's not actually magic. What it is is this, psychologists would call this pre-commitment. I've already basically said I would do this thing for you. I, I, and now I kind of feel like if I don't, well, I, I already said that I would, right? So now I'm, I'm kind of even more of You're a You're kind person. of on the hook. Yeah, you really are. Now, the problem with this stretch, so it's really effective, but it's really effective I'd say it's the kind of thing you actually want to use very sparingly and largely with strangers because, because it, it, it does feel controlling. So, okay. so at the end of the day, this is one of those strategies that makes people feel like they kind of have to do it, not that they really want to do it. And so, again, there's, there's places in life where that's okay. You know, if you're, if you're someone whose uh, job it is to ask for, um, to, you know, to get donations for a fund or something like that, maybe you don't care that, this, <laughs> that you're only going to talk to this person the one time. Um, so I would use it sparingly, but it does – this idea of pre-commitment, of getting people to basically say, yes, they'll do something um, – is one of those influence strategies that can be very helpful at getting the help you need. But yet it could also backfire in the long run. It can. I wouldn't use it with a friend. Okay. (laughs) And so, like, I didn't need to ask you for a favor to ask this question. I could have just said, Heidi, can you help us script the right and wrong way to ask for help? We'd be grateful. Yes, and I would have gladly done so. And you know what? I'm still glad to do it. It, it Okay, good. We're good. By the way, we have David calling in from Los Angeles. David, thank you for listening to Women at Work and calling in. What's on your mind today? How are you? I've been enjoying listening to you talk about, uh, you know, asking for assistance with different things. And I wanted to ask, is there a... Uh, in terms of the research that's been done, is there anything that speaks to the difference in, in, in text-based communication between email and, uh, and, and text? Because between those sort of two modalities, if you will, uh, they can vary in length, where, where oh, sure. uh, short messages can be more appropriate for text and sometimes longer for emails in terms well, of, say, the research or what, what's suggested. 
Sure. So, David, thank you for asking that question because it's a really good question. And I think the, the broader issue of how we communicate these things, whether we do it, like you said, in email or in a text or in a face-to-face or on the phone, it does actually turn out to really matter. Um, and there's a couple of things at play here. So if you take all of the impersonal communication, which I would say is text and email, right, you're not actually having a real live dialogue with the person, there's some danger around asking for help that way. We tend to want to ask for help that way because it feels more comfortable for me to reach out to someone over email than it does for me to pick up the phone or, or you know, walk up to them live and ask them a question. Um, but actually, the research on this is really clear. The in-person or live request is about... 34 times more successful on average than uh, email or text requests. And in other words, they did one study where they showed that basically you had to make 200 requests by email to get the same right, uh, success rate as six requests in person. And, and the reason for that is that people, you know, it's easier for you to ask that way, but you know what? It's also easier for the other person to turn you down. They're not going to feel as bad about ignoring your email um, as they are about ignoring you in person. <laughs> and so, and so you're, you really want that face-to-face interaction. Now, a text is interesting because a text is usually something exchanged by two people who kind of know each other. So assuming that, that, that that's the case, I think that can be fine. The one thing I will say is that, one of the most important things about about a request for help is that you be really explicit about what you're asking for. Um, I, I find that one of the most common mistakes people make is that they'll be very, very vague. And they, in a way, it's because they don't, they feel like if they're really specific about what they want, it's kind of being bossy. Um, the opposite is true. People will run like the wind away from you if you ask for something very vague because they don't really know what it is that you want and they don't really know um, what it is that, that, that whether or not they can actually do it. So I'd say text is fine if text still allows you to be as explicit as you need to be about exactly what it is that you need. Um, but in general, like actually picking up the phone and making a call or actually, if you can, having that interaction in person, that's going to lead to a, a much higher success rate. That makes a lot of sense, Heidi. David, is that helpful? Yes, thank you very much. And thank you for listening and calling in. If others of you have questions, give us a ring. We'd really love to take your questions and hear your voice. We're at one eight four four Wharton. That's eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So I I have an add on question to David's. Mm-hmm. So um, I've been in work environments all the time where we have no choice but to reach out via letter or email to involve people in our activities. And I've noticed two different ways of approaching the messaging. And we're talking now just about formal letters or email, Mm -hmm. um, where ultimately in both of them, they cut to the chase and get to what's being asked. But an email can start with, you know, I'm reaching out to you for this fantastic thing that we have. Here's all the information about it. We love you so much because you're so fantastic. Would you please think about joining us? And the thing that we're asking is buried behind all of that. And then I've seen them come in. Any chance you're free to speak here for this much money on this date? Right. And I'm happy to tell you more about it. Just call. Is there any research about the effectiveness of those two approaches or guidance you can give on when we have to ask in writing how to do it most effectively. I, I think that the, the, best, the best approach, I mean, you know, you always want to have a little bit of those niceties of, you know, hi, hi you know. The, Remember our manners. 
Yeah, there's a human per- human being reading this email, so you do want it to kind of sound like, you know, that it's specific to them, right? That it isn't a form letter. Those are terrible. Um, <laughs> right. and, and and again, there's a there's a reason for that. I think you know you always want it to feel like it's personal. Um, one of the common mistakes I see people make around emails, and you see this all the time, requests for help sent to many people simultaneously, mm-hmm. hoping that one or a couple of them will be helpful, and that. What that creates is really this diffusion of responsibility. Like, and it, by the way, blind copying does not solve this because if you're blind copying me, I know you're blind you know, copying you, other right. people, possibly thousands of other people. <laughs> right, exactly. right. So I just so people read those emails and they say to themselves, "Well, you know." Um, somebody else probably said yes. I don't need to worry right. about this. So they kind of move on to the next thing. Right, like, dear friend, given exactly. our close relationship, blah, 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 blah. I, yell, right. I know you're sending that to a lot of people. So, <laughs> right. I, so now I don't really feel like I'm on the hook. And, and so I, it's much, much easier for me to say no. So I think it's important for an email to feel personal. But I really do believe that you're better off cutting to the chase and being really, really clear about the ask. I, I tell you, the one thing that happens to me, you know, when, you, when you're at all, and, and this probably happens to you, um, by the nature of the work you do, that, that sometimes the people follow your work, and that's amazing, and they'll reach out to you, and that's great, and they'll say things like, I'd love to get together with you and pick your brain, or mm-hmm. I'd love to get together with you and chat or, or connect. Right. Right? They use these very vague phrases. And the thing about it is, like, they want something, and they know what it is. But I don't know what it is. And so I'm now in kind of a threat state, right? Because I don't know, like, I'm going to get together with you and you're going to ask me for something. And I don't know if it's going to be something I can provide. I don't know if it's something I'm going to want to provide. And so now I kind of want to just say no to the entire right. enterprise. And, and the thing I've experienced with that that's on the other side is that in the vagueness, um, Time is precious. And if you want my time so that I can help you solve a problem, get somewhere, impact the world, do something, I'm happy to do that. And I can use the time between now and when we actually meet to get ready for that. But if we're going to have a cup of coffee to just chat, what are we chatting about? Are we seeing if we can be friends? Are we trying to find common areas of interest? Um, What's the priority? Do we need to do this soon? Can we do this later? Is there an easier way to do this? It becomes noisy and messy in a different way. And none of us need that, right? Right. Because we are all really busy. You know, one of the things that's important to always be respectful of is that the person you're asking for help from almost certainly has way too much to do. I don't know anybody that doesn't have way too much to do. So you really do have to be mindful of. I'm making a request. The more explicit I am about what this involves for the person, the, the easier it is going to be for them to make a, 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 you know, a reasonable, educated judgment about whether or not they can help me. And the other thing is that, it's that you know, that like Adam's work on setting them up to be effective. Like you said, I, you can use that time before the meeting to come to it so that you're as effective a helper as possible because you're prepared. Exactly. So people want that, right? So, so again, I think we often err on the side of being vague because we feel like if we really come at them with the request, that's going to sound rude or it's going to sound right. bossy. And on the Ooh. flip side, I actually got a delightful message from um, I'd met a colleague in a meeting. I thought she was awesome. We exchanged some emails about that were actually, can you help me advertise for a position? And then I got a lovely message back that says, happy to help you. And by the way, I think you're great. You want to get some coffee. And that's where I know the coffee really is. Let's go become friends. Yes. 
Exactly. And I'm delighted to do that. And then you can make a decision about whether or not you want another friend. Yes. <laughs> so, and we can all just sort of, I think, I think that kind of openness and clarity is so important. And again, just a, a really common mistake that people make. Their intuition tells them to do all these things, like make it over email, make it impersonal, uh, make it vague. And, and, and really, you have to flip the script entirely. Absolutely. Um, and, and also remember that when we ask in person, we have the benefit of pacing, tone of voice, yes. body language, facial expressions. And when we write, we have none of that. Oh, it's so true. You know, I love to always say that 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 there's that no one has ever been nicer than they meant to be in an email. It's always the other way around, right? It's always I was accidentally way more rude than I, I thought I was going to be because we don't have a lot of those warmth signals that human beings send to one another are in the voice, they're in the face, they're in the body language. And so an email, and then also when we write emails, we really do seem to forget that there's a human being on the other end. <laughs> right. So to sort of write them as if we're speaking to a computer. Um, and, and so they tend to be cold and they can be abrupt and you can say something that wasn't really quite what you meant. Um, and, and, and I really do think it's, it's it, again, it's just so easy for most of us to ignore things in our inbox because we do it every day. Um, so you're not doing yourself any favors when you reach out. To, again, if that's the only way, the only avenue that's open to you, that's fine. Um, but if, if you have the ability to go another route, it's really worth it. Absolutely. By the way, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest this hour is the amazing Heidi Grant, social psychologist and author of Reinforcements, How to Get People to Help. You. If you've got a question about how to get the help you need, how to give help effectively, give us a call. We'd really love to talk with you. Our number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So Heidi, I want to talk about a different dynamic. And it's when we see people, often there are people I know who desperately need help and they're waiting for someone to see that they need help and they won't ask for it. Yeah. And while sometimes it feels like they're afraid, sometimes it also feels like it's a test. Do you really love me? Are you paying attention to mm-hmm. me? Are you tuned in? How can we help those people get their needs met in more effective ways? Because uh, I'm, I'm just jumping in the conclusion that that is not an effective way to go. Oh, it is not an effective way. You're so right. And it's such a great question because... It is another place where we could not be more wrong about what the problem is. I, I, I sort of just joking, but not really. I think to say to people, you know, the reality is if you're not getting the help you need, it's kind of your fault. And, and I mean, of course, yes, sometimes other people refuse to help us, and that's real. But most of the time, part of the reason why you're not getting the help you need is that the people you need help from actually have no idea that you need help. And it, 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 it can sometimes be even worse. So, so again, first and foremost, other people, our needs are not as obvious to other people as we think they are. They seem like they should be incredibly obvious, um, but, but really they're not. And that's because all, all of us, all human beings, walk around with a little bit of blinders on. We're focused on our own goals, our own feelings, our own thoughts, and it's very, very easy to miss or to misinterpret what we see in other people's behavior. And this is as true in our work relationships as it is in our most intimate interactions. Oh, absolutely. I mean, people miscommunicate constantly. And and also in relationships, people have known each other for years and years. That kind of 
you know, it's not as obvious. So that's one thing, you know, I, I, I hope people take from the book is, you know, it's, it's just if my needs are not obvious, I cannot assume that other people actually understand that I have a need for help. And then on top of that, you have to also recognize that even if someone understands that you need help, they may not think you want it. Mm. And that is really important. If you have ever offered help that someone didn't want to them, you know how well that goes. <laughs> I mean, it is really unpleasant to offer someone because they're insulted potentially. It's like, why do you think I need help? I'm trying to do it myself. I mean, those of us with kids know what that looks like. Um, <laughs> right. You know, no, 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 help me. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to do it myself. So, so even if they see your need, they need to take the fact that you're not asking for help as evidence of the fact that you don't actually want it and they don't want to offend you. And so, and so, so that's another problem. That, again, is another part of why asking for help explicitly becomes so essential. It's not fair to the people in our lives for us to walk around feeling sorry for ourselves because no one is helping us when really we're not doing what we need to do to empower those helpers to help us. And, and I think that is really part of it. Getting the help you need is, is more in your hands than you may realize, but you have a responsibility to set your helper up for success by being explicit, by being, you know, by being willing to admit that you need help, by being explicit about what you need, um, and then giving that opportunity, that person the opportunity to act on it. So I want to explore this in a kind of um, intense situation. Because, you know, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about when I was a kid, my own daughter, my colleagues, and how often we want help and, and, like, think that people should be mind readers. Right. Especially in our relationships at home. Oh, totally. But then there's another um, awful part of living when life has really dealt us a blow. We're sick. Our partners are sick. We're grieving. Something awful has happened where we are overwhelmed by our pain and our grief. And there are people around us who want to help. But there's this kind of chasm between um, like somebody's partner just died. I'm here if you need anything. Well, they sort of need everything, and they don't know how to ask for it. How do we bridge that gap when we're the helper? What a great question. I, I think that, that there's, a, there, there's a kind of a delicate balance here because you don't want to push, especially when somebody is in a really fragile state. But I think that what can happen is when people are really um, in an overwhelmed state, right, they're, they're their brains are really literally scrambled. I mean, mm-hmm. if anyone who's ever been incredibly anxious or depressed or angry knows what that does to your brain. You <laughs> yeah, you don't, don't process things well. Yeah, your whole, this is whole front of your, the front part of your brain, your prefrontal cortex just really kind of goes offline. And that's where all of your really good thinking happens <laughs> and all of your planning. And so, and so people are, it, it, they're really struggle to be able to articulate what they need. They're in an emotional state, so they're not their most rational. Um, I think one of the things we need to do when we see people in that place and we want to be helpful is, first of all, not be aggressive, um, not really push, because that can feel bad, but you do want to actually make specific suggestions. When you say, what can I do to help? What can I do to help? What can I do to help? As wonderful as that is, you are asking that other person to do to figure out what it is that they need, and they may not actually be in a great place for that. So I'd say offering specific, you know, would you like me to, um, you know, could I could I help you by mm-hmm. making some meals? 
um, for your family because, you, you know, I can imagine right now you really don't want to cook. You know, it would feel great for me if you would let me help you by taking on this project at work if I'm a colleague that I know you've been flipped. Let me finish this for you so you have one less thing to worry about. You know, making it a, a specific suggestion um, can be then something that person can latch on to and say, okay, yes. Like I, because when you're really in a bad state, you can't even think about what it is that you need. You're so overwhelmed. It, it's, it's a, I, I really appreciate how you put that. I had the experience once where a family member was sick and I needed to, you know, quickly leave work and help them. And, you know, I work with these amazing people. So everybody reached out to provide support. But one in particular, um, who I think understood that principle said to me, um, I happen to know some experts in this area. Can I bring them yeah. to you? Can I connect you with them? And what was so amazing was it became something really concrete. And while I didn't wind up taking them up on that offer, it opened a door for me to be able to talk to them about part of the details of what were going on. Yeah. And it was enormously helpful. I, I do really think that you want to be gentle about it, um, but you and you want to you know and you want to give them space and not push. But I do think that offers of if you can take the time to to perspective take a bit, imagine what they might be going through, and think about something that you could be really effective in doing for them. That you know, and make that concrete offer. I think you're much more likely to be able to have a positive impact. And as you were mentioning before, we can do this in our personal lives and our professional lives. Oh, absolutely. The, you know, the need, we need help <laughs> everywhere, need help everywhere, right? I mean, I know that, that there is no part of my life in which I could not use a, a helping hand. And, and I, I do think it's important to, I mean, I'm so glad you brought up that issue of, of the mind reading, because as much as we think our colleagues should be mind readers, we really think that our partners and our friends and our family should be mind readers, because there is that sense of, you know, well, you know me, so why don't you get this? Right. And if um, you loved me, me, you would know what I needed. Oh, gosh, that is so not true. It, <laughs> and it's actually, there's even research on this. So just really quickly, when you look at how people rate themselves and their personality and what they're like and their needs and their beliefs and so on, and then you look at what other people who know them rate them on, and you look at the correlation between those things. So people who've been married for about 10 years have about the highest correlation, 10 years or more, and it's, it's 0.5. So again, like a perfect correlation is one, right? Mm -hmm. People who know you better than anyone else, they're still wrong most right. of the time. Half the time, right? <laughs> right? About, about what, you know, you're thinking and feeling and acting on. So that's really important. It's like even the closest people to you, you're still much more of an enigma than you realize. We are never open books to each other. And so, t so taking some of that ownership is important for having a good relationship with other people. Absolutely. So now let's look at it in inverse with the few minutes that we have left. When we're asking for help from different types of people, you know, our partners, our kids, the people closest to us, right. our colleagues or strangers, what should we keep in mind about the differences in how we should approach them? You know, I, I think that in general, most of, uh, most of what's true about asking for help remains true kind of across the board, that even the, the people, no matter what the nature of your relationship is, people do definitely want um, that clarity, they want that straightforward approach um, that helps them to understand what it is that you need. But I think that also it's important to to really be careful about that transactional piece when it's somebody who's close to you. When you have a real relationship with someone that goes beyond just a sort of perfunctory acquaintance thing, you really do want to always refrain from from 
from keeping tabs, from ever saying, well, I did this for you, from offering rewards, and really allow the building of the relationship and the strengthening of the relationship itself to be the reward, because it, it really and truly is. And I'd say that, you know, a lot of times we 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 shy away from asking for help for people that we don't know very well because we feel like, well, you know, my friends and family, they have to like me. But, you know, other people don't. And, I, again, <laughs> I would say that that's a mistake. I think that colleagues and even perfect strangers are much more likely to help us than we realize. So I'd say in general, we just need to be casting a broader net. We need to be more open and we need to be more explicit. And the great thing is that kind of only good things come from this and only better and stronger <laughs> relationships come from this at the end of the day. And plus you get the help you need. So really, it's a huge win-win. It really is because it sounds like by understanding that people want to help us, that we not only help them feel good and get the help that we need, but we can actually open the door to even deeper and more rewarding relationships. That's perfectly said. Thank you. And Heidi, thank you. So if people want to learn more about the work that you're doing and they want to get the book, where can they find you? Well, as they say, the book is uh, available wherever books are sold. Um, And for more information about me and some of my writing that's, you know, available for free on all kinds of the topics that you mentioned before, um, they can go to my website, which is uh, HeidiGrantPhD.com, and check out um, all kinds of uh, writing on on help-seeking, motivation, setting goals, and all the things I love talking about. (laughs) Heidi, it has been such a joy to talk with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. Thank you. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.